Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. If you've been watching the news through the week, of course you could hardly have missed the flooding in central western New South Wales, especially the massive release of water from the huge Wyangla Dam, 200,000 megalitres on Monday, 230,000 megalitres on Tuesday and Wednesday, Oh, that's half of Sydney Harbour each day pouring into the Lachlan River and threatening towns like Forbes and Condoblin and Ugara downstream. By and large, bad news if you're in the path of the flood. And almost unseemly to talk positively about water this morning. But it's a visual image in a sense that I want you to hold on to as I remind you again of that famous Old Testament scene that imagines a river of life that flows like that, not bringing death and destruction, but life to everything it touches, bringing healing instead of harm. It's an ancient image from the prophet Ezekiel, ancient even in the days of Jesus, that dreamed of a day that life and restoration would flow from Jerusalem as a river flows to fill the sea. And if you've been here for the earlier parts of our long teaching series through John's Gospel, you might remember I've mentioned it before. Can I say before we go there though, if you've been here right through the series, if you can remember back to when we began in mid-August last year, congratulations. You deserve a certificate and I'm serious, so I made some. I've got six copies and if you see me later, if you're first, I'll give you one if you've made it all the way through John's Gospel because if nothing else, it means you've been here week by week as our readers have read it aloud section by section, verse by verse, from John chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through to chapter 21 verse 25. You've travelled the back blocks of Cana of Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. You've tangled with big philosophical ideas like incarnation and resurrection. You've watched as Jesus has performed astonishing signs You've listened in to the private conversation at the Last Supper. You've watched him denied and crucified. And last time stood with doubting Thomas as he saw and touched the reality of the resurrection. And this morning you're back again for more, the final instalment. So, well done. See me if you want to take home a certificate to celebrate. Now, in some ways, it's a strange conclusion, chapter 21. Some scholars even wonder if it was meant to be here in the first place. And yet, in a cryptic way, it ties up a few important loose ends. Like, first of all, the deep theological theme that John's been developing right from the start, all about this water 
of the river of life. And then a second loose end. More practically, what about Peter, who has a pretty big unresolved problem on his conscience, having, you might remember, on the morning of the crucifixion, three times denied that he even knew Jesus. So, part one. And in a sense, you can see that although Peter is the common thread right through the chapter, it falls into two quite distinct sections. Verse one, time has passed since Jesus appeared in the locked room. We're not specifically told how long. After these things. We move to a scene on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which the Romans have renamed in honour of the Emperor Tiberius, where seven of the disciples decide to go fishing. And if you're wondering why they do that, having witnessed the resurrected Jesus, you're not alone in wondering. There's been a lot said about Peter's state of mind, which we'll come back to a little later. But at this point, that's not the main concern. The point is they are by the seashore and they're going fishing. So let me pause for just a moment and recap the famous vision in Ezekiel chapter 47, a touchstone in a sense of the nation of Israel's hopes and ambitions. In Ezekiel's vision, there's an angel who takes him on a tour of the Jerusalem temple, which not long before had been destroyed by invading forces. This is somehow, in the vision, a restored temple, and it's odd because somehow, as Ezekiel walks around, he can see it becomes like the source of a mighty river. There's water leaking out everywhere. He says, then the angel brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And the angel then leads him into the water on foot. Now we're told, of course, if it's flooded, forget it. But in this case, it starts out shallow, ankle deep. Then 500 metres later, 1,000 cubits, it's, it's knee deep. And it keeps going further and further and deeper and deeper. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river I couldn't pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then they go back to the side where there are trees with a constant supply of fruit and healing leaves. The angel says, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the water goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Now, here's the thing. 
John has, in a sense, been teasing us with hints of Ezekiel 47 all the way through his gospel. Water has been one of his major themes. Here's the point. It's not the physical temple in Jerusalem that's going to be the source of life flowing out to the world. John says it's Jesus who's going to bring that. It's not the physical temple in Jerusalem that is the the merging point between God and man. It's Jesus. In fact, he said exactly that right back in chapter 2. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple he's talking about is his body. Again, John chapter 7, the great feast of tabernacles where at the temple the priests enact each year Ezekiel 47 by pouring out a huge brass laver of water. Jesus in chapter 7 stands up with a public announcement. Listen to it. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Which then you see for alert readers is highlighted at the cross. One of the soldiers pierces his side with a spear and at once there comes out blood and water. His death, our life. Now, if, if with John's mention of water 23 times in his gospel, on average once in every chapter, with John's emphasis on water, in a sense, as a theme in his understanding of the ministry of Jesus, with Jesus himself so much in the practice of symbolising spiritual truth in his signs and actions, how good is it that John is going to bring the story to a close with the account of one final sign that brings it all together? that Ezekiel's vision of a river that trickles out from the temple and becomes a deeper and deeper river of life, that brings green when there was only dust, that brings life when there was only a valley of dry bones, that, that Ezekiel's vision of a river of life that flows into the sea and brings life everywhere and an explosion of fish gets played out on the pebbly beach as Peter and six of the other disciples go fishing. And although they've been out on the water most of the night, they've caught nothing. Until Jesus appears on the beach in the dawning light and calls to them. They're still a hundred metres out, well out on the lake. 
He says, you want fish? I'll show you fish. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. John recognises Jesus first under his codename, the disciple Jesus loved. But Peter, as usual, acts first. Jumps overboard, leaving the fish and the other guys behind and heads for the shore, wading through the water, much like in Ezekiel's vision. The others follow in the boat, dragging the net the hundred metres or so to shore, and when they count the catch, it's 153 fish, all of them large. We were at the fish market last weekend, fresh fish in the display, $24 a kilo. Lou asked the typical weight, all of them two to three kilos, we were told, in which case this is something like a $12,000 haul. Now, at this point, you might be asking if this is all somehow symbolic, then why 153 fish? Why that particular number? And let me tell you, through the last 2,000 years, people have made all kinds of suggestions about that, some of which are kind of clever. Like, for instance, the patristic scholar St Jerome argued that there were 153 different types of fish in the sea and listed them, which means a catch of 153 fish symbolises perhaps inclusion for everyone. Then someone else counted and found there were 154 types of fish in the known ocean and that blew that theory. But look, I don't think we need to pin down all the details to get the point. You see, don't you love those photos where they reenact an old scene? Maybe three kids in a particular pose when they're tiny, they grow up and put on the same coloured shirts and stand in the same spots in the same positions and relive the moment. Our kids had a favourite photo taken years ago sitting on the back steps. When they got together with their kids, they recreated the same scene. See, I guess it's a way of reliving the moment, bringing to mind a point in family history. So picture this. As Peter wades through the water, as the other guys drag the net crammed with fish onto the beach, open their nets. Picture that as you read Ezekiel 47 verses 9 and 10. There will be very many fish. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea. Which means, you see, by implication, that the living water is flowing at last because of the resurrected Jesus. And so the time for new starts and new hearts that the words of Ezekiel had promised for hundreds of years, it's now. 
all being symbolised for them by Jesus on this third resurrection appearance as he serves them breakfast on the beach. Now, with that point made, and that is point number one, it's time to focus on Peter. First of all, while we're thinking about that early morning breakfast on the beach, you'll notice in passing the charcoal fire that they notice glowing there as they pull in the boat in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place which is notable mainly for the fact that the last time we were gathered around an early morning charcoal fire in John's Gospel was in chapter 18. In fact, the only other place the New Testament uses the word anthrakia, charcoal fire. It's in the high priest's courtyard where you might remember Peter, for all his bold words, Peter, for all his overconfidence, three times when put on the spot, denies that he even knows the guy being questioned inside. Three times denies he is a disciple of Jesus. Which in the light of the resurrection must be acutely embarrassing. Now brought right to the front of his mind by the fact that here is Jesus standing in front of another early morning anthrakia, charcoal fire, with the same smoky smell, the same stinging eyes, which John highlights for us by using exactly that same word. Talk about recreating a scene. Because you see, Jesus is, I think, very deliberately bringing Peter face to face with his threefold failure. And when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than the other guys do, I guess. He's saying that's ambiguous. Maybe more than these fishing nets. To which Peter answers in in any case, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Maybe hedging a little. Jesus says to him, feed my lambs which is a commissioning, in a sense, to lead and pastor the team, which is a dramatic turnaround from failure. But then, verse 16, Jesus asks him a second time. And they replay the whole conversation. Awkwardly, verse 17, a third time, by which time Peter is getting upset and slightly exasperated. John says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. It's only fair, isn't it? Three denials call for three reaffirmations. More important for the future, I guess, three new commissions to overcome overcome the shame of his past failure and move forward to tend and feed the flock. Which, 
Church history tells us Peter goes on to do, loving the Lord Jesus and historically leader of the early church, which again is an astonishing turnaround given his failure. Feeding and tending the flock, which becomes Peter's paradigm for eldership and for church leadership. As we saw in his letter a few weeks ago as we ordained our three new elders. In Peter's words, fellow shepherds of the flock. So, threefold forgiveness for past mistakes. Which again I think is great comfort in our own mistakes and failures and our frailties of faith. Just one more point to make as we move into John's final few sentences because there is that strange little exchange between Jesus and Peter and then John himself as the author of the book that only really makes sense, I think, if you're a first century reader and you're actually part of the very early church where John, in his old age, is still alive and Peter by now has met a violent end which Jesus himself has foreshadowed. I don't know if you've perhaps got the impression that following Jesus means that everything goes smoothly from that point on. Because it's clear here that that's not the deal on offer to Peter. These are solemn words, words I'm not sure Peter would have wanted to hear. But the fact is, as he takes on the mantle of shepherding the sheep, he's actually going to face the same kind of death that Jesus did, who has so recently stretched out his hands to be nailed to a cross. Tradition tells us that's exactly what happened to Peter as well. You can see the words on the screen, kind of cryptic. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Friends, in worldly terms, we need to remember this. There is no guarantee that everything is going to be roses. But follow Jesus anyway. And remember the resurrection. They turn and John's just behind them on the beach. Peter points to him and says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus makes a cryptic remark that then started a rumour that John who among all the disciples lived to a ripe old age, well into his 90s, the rumour that John was actually immortal, which John, of course, denies. The main point being that when Peter queries it, Jesus says to him, what's it to you how things go for him? You do you and leave everyone else to me. Jesus says to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Without complaints or comparisons, 
without asking why things turn out one way for you and some other way for someone else. From now on, in the light of the resurrection, in the light of the water of life that's available, get on with it. And you follow me. This is exactly the message John's planning to leave us with. In the stream of the river of life that flows from Jesus, there is forgiveness for everything past. And there is a call to follow into an uncertain future, no matter which way it unfolds. Confident that whatever death we die, it ultimately leads to life. You follow him. At which point we come to John's final words. He says, I'm the one who was walking along on the sand behind them. I'm the one who leaned beside him on the table. I'm the one who stood beside his mum as he struggled for breath on the cross. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. These are first-hand words. Words trusted. Words of life, words of challenge. The bottom line is, will you follow Jesus too and drink from the water of life? You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.